To see pictures of some of the places talked about here, check out our YouTube channel and the video version of this episode. I'm a huge fan of roadside attractions, even things like the biggest ball of string, which for the record is in Branson, Missouri and is 45 and a half feet across. That's 12.6 meters. Though there's another one in Cocker City, Kansas that also tries to lay claim to the title and another claimant in Darwin, Minnesota. Well, you can find weird things everywhere in the world. No one really does this quite like the United States. We already talked about the Georgia Guidestones in a previous episode, and today we're going to look at some more things you can go see. Some Stonehenge-y things, some tiles, some plaques, and some other very interesting places. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain, that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. My wife and I travel quite a bit and we usually try to see some of the more unusual sights to see wherever we go. And there's probably no better source for these offbeat attractions than the incredible Atlas Obscura website. Check the episode notes for a link to that and other places and things talked about here in this episode. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and drop me a line and tell me you liked it. If, I, if enough people found this interesting, perhaps we'll do more in a similar vein. As was mentioned in a previous episode, some call the Georgia Guidestones the American Stonehenge, and clearly the design had that famous British monument in mind. However, there's another attraction that's actually called America's Stonehenge in Salem, New Hampshire, right on the state line with Massachusetts. America's Stonehenge. Called Mystery Hill until 1982 until the owners decided to take a term that was used in news articles back in the 60s, America's Stonehenge, and call it that. The idea was that this is a real archaeological site and not just one of America's many offbeat roadside attractions. The area has some caves and a number of interesting rocks sticking up out of the ground and stacked in interesting ways which encouraged the mind to see patterns. An insurance executive named William Goodwin bought the land in 1937 and he sure saw patterns and wove himself a pretty interesting tale. He thought a group of Irish monks called the Kuldees had made it to the New World way before Columbus and that they had built structures here. He also thought that the Viking remains that had been found in Vineland up in Canada off the coast of Newfoundland were also from these Irish monks. Of course, over the years, some of the stones had been moved, and so he put them back where he kind of thought they probably should go. Then in 1956, the Stone family, and isn't that funny, bought it, and now they had a place that they could charge people to see to, as their tagline has it, explore the mysteries. 
They made vague claims about even more ancient origins, and some academics got on board with this for whatever reason, like marine biologist Barry Fell, who in the 1970s thought he saw ancient scripts on some of the stones from Druidic Ireland, ancient Spain, and Phoenicia. Interesting, some real academics have found evidence of ancient stoneworking techniques on some of the stones that could date back a very long time indeed, and evidence has been found that humans have lived in the area for at least 4,000 years. However, exactly zero European artifacts have ever been found. While the place sure captures folks' imaginations, H.P. Lovecraft visited a few times, and while some think he used it as the location for his 1929 novella The Dunwich Horror, others say he visited there after that was published. It's referenced in an episode of The X-Files and the second episode of the classic TV program In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. That episode was all about a thing they called the Oracle Chamber at Mystery Hill, and the show's writers very much tried to suggest that that was Minoan, like from the Minoans on the island of Crete in Greece, came to New Hampshire. And of course, New Agers and hippies report feeling strong mystical energies at the spot and so on. A 1998 article in Discover Magazine with the wonderful title of Yankee Doodle Druid quotes the president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society as saying that Mystery Hill is to archaeology what the National Enquirer is to journalism. On September 28, 2019, a man named Mark Russo made his way from New Jersey to America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire, a five-and-a-half-hour drive plus traffic, and used a power tool to carve WWG1WGA into one of the stones. This is a QAnon acronym meaning, where we go one, we go all, one of their stock phrases. He also left behind a wooden cross and a drawing of a child smiling and a couple of other drawings, including one of the Statue of Liberty. He also carved I-A-M-M-A-R-K before leaving. Now, the police had come across that QAnon acronym before, but this was puzzling until somebody figured out that it said I am Mark and that was his Twitter handle. Also, on his Twitter account, this genius wrote, quote, Oh, made a few improvements at American Stonehenge. Sorry, my bad. And, quote, Do you see any reason not to take down their portals? Boston specifically. Oh, and the 6-6 ball shaft? Ball meaning B-A-A-L, as in the ancient god. Now, that first tweet is a confession, and the second one, nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. Is that a QAnon thing that the satanic pedophile ring uses teleportation portals? I don't know. Back in 1932, a carved limestone stella was found in northwest Syria, 66 feet from the old temple of Baal in the Ugarit Acropolis, which showed the Aramean god of rain and storms, Baal, holding a lightning bolt, which is now on display at the Louvre in Paris. Is that what he was referring to? Or maybe he was referring to DuPont Underground, a massive network of tunnels under DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., originally constructed to be part of the subway system back in 1949, but which shut down after only 13 years and then was kind of abandoned until someone tried to turn it into an underground food court in 1995, but it was nasty, so it failed. But then, in 2015, an architect named Julian Hunt got a 66-month lease to revitalize it into a huge 15,000-square-foot art and culture space which is still in operation today. Was I am Mark Russo triggered by a 66-month lease? Because that's, what, two-thirds of the beast or something? Who the hell knows? All I know is that his hearing was on April 21st this year, but no news services have seen fit to report what the outcome was. America's Stonehenge is on Haverhill Road off of Route 111 in North Salem, and State Historical Marker 72 all about it is about four miles west of the actual site. A hankering for hinges. 
Stonehenge itself is very probably the greatest mystery spot anywhere in the Western world and probably deserves its own episode someday. It certainly inspires plenty of people into producing their own petroglyphic places for the punters. There's a full-size replica made of concrete in Mary Hill, Washington, finished in 1929 as a memorial to the fallen soldiers of World War I. There's one near Fortine, Montana, built by an inventor named James Smith on private land, so I guess that's just for himself. The University of Texas of the Permian Basin has a replica unveiled in 2004. The Missouri University of Science and Technology has a half-sized one. The Western Australian town of Esperance has an actual full-sized, wholly accurate one that's also correctly astronomically aligned. On New Zealand's North Island, there's one made from spray concrete and wood adapted for the night sky of the Southern Hemisphere. The Tasmanian town of Buckland built a full-sized one out of sandstone, but because they didn't have the correct permissions to build it, it was torn down. There's one made of fiberglass in Alabama called Bamahenge. There's one made of foam in Virginia called Foamhenge by artist Mark Klein. British Foamhenge is made of shaped polystyrene and was built on Wiltshire Downs for a TV program on Channel 5 about the real Stonehenge, but then it stayed because the locals became quite fond of it. Carhenge is a 1987 artwork made of old American cars stuck into the ground near Alliance, Nebraska. Truckhenge is made of old truck parts and other recycled junk in Topeka, Kansas. At the Freestyle Music Park in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, there's Phonehenge, made of old British telephone booths. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, there was Fridgehenge, made of old refrigerators, but it was torn down in 2006 after complaints. Guerrilla artist Banksy made one out of toilets for the 2007 Glastonbury Festival, probably a comment on the fact that that festival never has sufficient toilet facilities. And in 2004, a circle of post holes was found in a field in Russia and photographed, and local wits promptly called that the Russia Stonehenge. There are, incidentally, many, many, many more, and they can all be found at the wonderful website Clonehenge, which bills itself as, quote, a blog about Stonehenge replicas. We kid you not. Check the episode notes for a link. There are also sunline arrangements such as Manhattan Henge, a term coined in 1996 by native New Yorker Neil deGrasse Tyson. Because the city of Manhattan streets are at a 28.9 degree angle from true east-west, Sunset, somewhere between May 28th and July 13th, and Sunrise, somewhere between December 5th and January 8th, directly align with the city's grid layout, transforming the streets into golden and red light-bathed wonders for a few glorious minutes. The best viewing is on 14th and Broadway near Union Square, 23rd and Broadway near the Flatiron Building, 34th and 5th, near the Empire State Building, 42nd and 3rd by the Chrysler Building, 57th and 8th near the Hearst Building, the Tudor City Overpass over by the UN Building, and if you want a view from a distance, Hunters Point South Park in Long Island City over in Queens. Check local websites for the exact dates and times for each year. I'll take take Manhattan. Manhattan. Speaking of Manhattan, there's a crazy thing on the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in Morningside Heights over on Amsterdam Avenue between West 110th and West 113th, abutting Morningside Park, next to Mount Sinai Morningside Hospital and Columbia University. The cathedral was started in 1892 and consecrated in 1911, but it has never been finished. As a result, locals sometimes refer to it as St. John's the Unfinished. It is the largest Christian church in the United States, fifth largest in the world. 
also the largest unfinished church in the world, the main church for the Episcopal Diocese, and the seat of the bishop. And there on its western facade is the large portal of paradise that has carvings of the transfiguration of Jesus, plus images of St. John and 32 other characters from the Bible. But closer examination reveals much more. Why, there's a dragon meeting a dog. There's a baby's head coming out of a flower. There's a tree of life from Kabbalah, which is a Jewish mystical tradition. And there is destruction. People running in fear from the stock exchange building chased by a scorpion and a snake while a skeleton looks on. Huge waves rising up, breaking the Brooklyn Bridge in two and knocking a bus into the water below. In fact, the whole city's getting whamped. The twin towers of the World Trade Center are there as well, falling over, and I think you can see what's coming. This has caught the eye of some 9-11 truthers. See, they say, see, it was all planned. They carved it onto the church before they did it. Well, except that the Brooklyn Bridge is still very much standing, and to date, there have been no reports of scorpions or snakes near the Stock Exchange building. At least not the actual animals. The carvings date from 1988 to 1997 and were made by Simon Verity. Yes, his name means truth. He wanted to use local landmarks and even local residents to depict the apocalypse of St. John, the saint to whom this cathedral is dedicated. By adding in local color, he hoped visitors and parishioners would feel a more personal connection to John's dire warnings in the last book of the Bible. The church, needless to say, is a little tired of all the conspiracy chit-chat about its weird portal of paradise. They've got a whole bunch of different art in there, and this is just one of the many pieces. In an effort to dispel some of the myths surrounding it, they've made a four-part virtual tour explaining the artworks as part of their hashtag Museum From Home series. Check the dedicated playlist for this episode on the YouTube channel for those videos and more related videos. Look down, look down, don't look them in the eye. Yes, that was a line from Les Mis. Shut up. We're in Manhattan. And while we're here, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the weird and wonderful Toynbee tiles. That's the name given to cryptic statements, all in capital letters, stuck to sidewalks and streets all over the city, about the size of a U.S. car license plate, possibly made of linoleum and asphalt crack sealant. These started appearing in the 1980s in New York and Philadelphia, and over the years have cropped up in several cities, Pittsburgh, Boston, Philly, New York, obviously, Washington, D.C., Richmond, Cleveland, Cincinnati, St. Louis, and even some in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Today, there have been literally hundreds of them placed here and there. Some of the messages try to inspire others to create their own, and copycat ones have been seen even further afield in Detroit, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Roswell, New Mexico. There are a bunch of different ones, but the main message on most of them is the same enigmatic phrase. Toynbee idea in Kubrick's 2001 Resurrect Dead on Planet Jupiter. Say what? Say what? Speculation, as you can imagine, flew around about who the heck did this and what the heck they were trying to say. Could it be a mysterious group trying to push us towards a utopian future? Or maybe a dystopian one? Shades of the Georgia Guidestones there. Perhaps, some people said, it's Pulitzer Prize winning New York playwright David Mamet doing some kind of offbeat street art. 
He says it's not him, but he does think it's somehow a reference to his 1983 play 4AM, in which a Larry King-like radio host takes a long, rambling phone call from a caller who insists that Kubrick's film 2001 A Space Odyssey is actually based on ideas found in the work of British philosopher of history Arnold J. Toynbee, and there's a plan to populate the planet Jupiter with resurrected dead earthlings. So when Mamet first saw one of these tiles on a sidewalk in New York, as he later put it, he thought, quote, that's the weirdest thing that ever happened. I mean, is there someplace else that all of those elements are mentioned in one place? Arnold Toynbee is most well-known for his 12-volume work, A Study of History, but it's in his 1969 book, Experiences, that he talks about the idea. He says that humans have never solved the paradox of having a physical body and also an immaterial soul, especially because no one's ever met a soul without a body. And so the modern scientific worldview may say it's impossible for a dead creature to come to life. However, he says, if a modern person wanted to seriously entertain the notion, they'd have to think, quote, in the Christian terms of a psychosomatic resurrection rather than the shamanistic terms of a disembodied spirit. Some people think that what he was trying to say was, basically, if you want to resurrect someone, you'd have to do it in a body, which means you'd have to reconstruct their molecules to create a perfect copy of that original body, kind of like the transporter does in Star Trek. The tiles first started showing up in Philadelphia, and then in 1983, the Philadelphia Inquirer published an article about a man named James Morasco, who would frequently call up newspapers and radio talk shows to spread the word about a plan to physically resurrect the dead on Jupiter, just like he would say in the movie 2001 and Arnold Toynbee's writings. It seems awfully specific to be a coincidence. In another interview, this fellow says he had founded a group called the Minority Association with the goal of focusing on colonizing Jupiter. Later research showed that while this organization did actually exist, it only had four members at its height and it only lasted a couple of years. Artist and tile aficionado Justin Dewar made a documentary about all this in 2011 titled Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. The director, John Foy, would go on to win the Best Directing Award at Sundance. Dewar said he thought they were made by a carpenter in Philly named Severino Verna, or Sevi to his friends. Sevi had used the names James Morosco as a pseudonym. Many small versions of the tiles, almost like test tiles, were found in the streets around Sevi's house, and ham radio fans in the area said that he would frequently use his shortwave radio to talk about a Hovian resurrection plan. People in the neighborhood also said that he had had the passenger seat removed from his car and there was just a hole in the bottom and it was thought that maybe he would just drop the tiles onto the street through that hole and then cars driving by would affix them more permanently to the surface. Later tiles, probably from copycats, don't mention Toynbee at all, but have various other messages. Some of them are, quote, murder every journalist, I beg you, and house of Hades, these made from the ground bones of dead journalists, with a small additional tile that says, to punish them for all that they've done. And then there's a skeleton in a black robe with a sickle. Incidentally, House of Hades is an art collective that also sells gear, and apparently they just don't like journalists. Other Toynbee tiles have shown up in Atlantic City, directly attacking a man named Mason Meltzer. The maker of the documentary, Resurrect Dead, however, says he met the Toynbee Tyler, who is known as TTT, the Toynbee Tyler, by fans, and that he is, in fact, a Philadelphia-based artist born in the 1950s. There's a very entertaining website the director maintains called ToynbeeIdea.com with lots more information for the curious. Now, the Toynbee tiles degrade since people walk on them and drive on them all day, not to mention 
of the effects of weather. Road work and road repair destroys many more. In Chicago, the city has declared that they are vandalism, and whenever they find out about one, they have it removed. Some individuals have managed to save some from destruction and obscurity, and in 2015, the city of Philadelphia finally acknowledged they had a genuine, interesting street art phenomenon on their hands, and said that as long as someone can come up with a cheap and efficient way to remove them, they would be happy to preserve a few. The Toy and Bee tiles remain, for most of us at least, a mystery and kind of a fun one. In 2013, Philly-based hip-hop artist Lush Life, real name Raj Halder, wrote a four-part musical work called Toy and Bee Suite. You can even buy t-shirts online and in Philadelphia with Toy and Bee tiles on them made by various companies. Since no one is claiming authorship, no one can claim copyright. Be warned, however, some of them are pretty bad quality. Not all, but some are. Rock me, lead Skalnen. Yeah, that's a Falco reference. Down near the southern tip of Florida, just off the Southern Dixie Highway, U.S. Route 1, in the Miami suburb of Homestead, there's the enigmatic Coral Castle, sometimes called Florida's Stonehenge. This is a huge sculpture garden made of large-scale rock shapes in total comprising 1,100 tons of oolite limestone. This is a limestone made of tiny round grains of carbonate that sometimes includes bits of coral or fossilized seashells, thus Coral Castle. The stones sit on top of one another with no mortar, just weight and balance hold them together. There's a wall of 8-foot-tall monoliths, an obelisk, a sundial that's accurate to within two minutes, a fountain, a lensless polar telescope made of stone, a massive eight-foot-tall stone gate that revolves with ease, it's so perfectly balanced, and lots of furniture pieces, each one made from a single large stone, including a table shaped like a heart, another table shaped like the state of Florida, chairs shaped like moons, 25 rocking chairs, beds, a bathtub, and a throne. It is a castle, after all. Everything is made of oolite limestone stones, averaging 15 tons each, though the largest individual stone weighs 30 tons. Over a 28-year period, it was built in secret by a single man, Edward Leedskalnin. Edward was born in northeast Latvia in 1887 to a fairly poor family. He was a sickly child and supplemented the little bit of schooling he got by reading books. He only got up to about a fourth grade instruction or so. His father was a stonemason, so that's what he became. When he was 26, his 16-year-old fiancée, Agnes Skoofst, called the wedding off, and heartbroken, he decided to leave Latvia and try his luck in America, landing in New York City. But then he ended up on the opposite side of the country in Reedsport, Oregon, at the northern edge of the Oregon sand dunes along the coast, making wooden axe handles. When he was 36, he got tuberculosis and once again traveled across the country, this time settling in the warmer and more lung-friendly Florida City in Florida, which at the time was kind of a nowheresville outside of Miami, right at the edge of the Everglades, but later would become a bustling suburb of that city. Weirdly, though, when he bought the land, he listed himself as a Californian on the deed. Maybe his geography wasn't great. This was in 1923, and later that same year, he set to work building himself a castle. He named it Ed's Place and hung out there trying to improve his health with the Florida climate and with the use of magnets, a subject he was a self-professed expert in. In 1936, he decided he'd move the whole thing about five miles or so north to escape a new subdivision being built thereby and hired trucks to ship his entire castle piece by piece to his new property in Homestead. This process took three years. 
Finally, Castlefied, he did more work on it until his death in 1951. He worked alone, mainly at night, and no one really ever saw him work on it. So when he opened the doors to what was known at the time as Rock Gate for tourism, charging 10 cents a pop back then, people were amazed that he'd managed to quarry, transport, and carve all these huge chunks of rock all by himself. This small guy, he was only about five feet tall, he seldom ate, and he only weighed around 100 pounds. In fact, in the area, he was known as the little guy. When asked how he did it, he mentioned that he'd studied theories on how the great pyramids of Egypt were built. He claimed he'd figured it out, and that once you understood the principles of weight and leverage, it really just wasn't that hard. He occasionally made references to what he called a perpetual motion holder, which is unfortunately not a real thing. So the castle now known as Rock Gate, he would sometimes refer to as his Sweet 16, and he placed a sign next to the entrance that says, you will be seeing unusual accomplishment. He was an odd man, surviving almost exclusively on saltine crackers and sardines. And in his later years, he simply wouldn't eat at all. When he wasn't building, building, building during the night, he wrote things down that he thought were important. A few pamphlets, one about morals, the focus being that boys are basically gross and girls should be kept pure, and that churches were ruining girls by arranging picnics between boys and girls. He talks about child rearing, with a mention that when a girl reaches 16, she is, quote, as good as she ever will be, and that if a 16-year-old daughter is being besieged by a young fella, for, you know, the dirty stuff, the girl's mother should, quote, pose as an experimental station for that fresh boy to practice on and so save the girl, unquote. The reasoning being that the mother has already been defiled by the disgusting act of sex. I kind of feel like maybe Edward may have died a virgin. And he also talked about politics with statements like, quote, anyone who is too weak to make his own living is not strong enough to vote. So he's kind of an early Reaganite. And as I mentioned before, he was really, really into magnetism. He thought that tiny magnets float around inside of metals and all other matter. In fact, these teeny tiny magnets are what held things together, not the strong nuclear force. And he was also really into numerology, and some people think his frequent Sweet 16 references represented some sort of an ideal and not an actual person somehow in numerology, because 16 is made up of the numbers 1 and 6 when written down, 1 plus 6 is 7, and 7 is the number of esoteric hidden mysteries. And of course, there was that whole reason he left in the first place when his 16-year-old fiance dumped him, though some Latvian sources say that it was not this 16-year-old named Agnes, but actually a different woman who was only two years younger than him. So maybe he just made that story up. But people do love stories, and the 16-year-old fiancé tale was the one that most locals had heard and told each other. In fact, Billy Idol said that his song, Sweet 16, was all about Edward and his Latvian love, and the music video for that song was actually filmed at Coral Castle, which is the name that Rockgate would eventually become known as. The fact that no one had ever seen him working on this rather remarkable feat of engineering and his offbeat esoteric interests got tongues wagging about more than just his love life in the old country. Two teenage boys, perhaps after a busy day of lusting after pure 16-year-old girls, claimed to have seen him levitating huge stone blocks like they were balloons. Pretty soon, kooks were speculating far afield in theories like he used magnetism to move and shape the stones. No, no, no. It was alien technology he found somewhere. Yes, 
This place, Coral Castle, was actually mentioned in an episode of Ancient Aliens. No, he did it through telekinesis. No, other people say he used magic. And, of course, naturally, some subset of those people say magic from Satan. Hippy-dippy types think he used knowledge of earth energies, the knowledge of which was used by the ancient Egyptians and the Celts, but then got lost over time. Hippie New Agey types and dowsers say that they can detect unusual energies in the site, despite the fact that it was actually moved from its original location. And in one of the wilder claims, a few people said that Edward had discovered that there is, in fact, no such thing as gravity. Coral Castle has been used at least since the 70s by both the misguided and the unscrupulous as, quote, proof of some pet theory or another from the fringes of esoterica. However, an old friend of Edward's, and yes, he was weird, but he had friends, a guy named Orville Irwin says all of this nonsense actually makes him angry since it downgrades the amazing accomplishment of his pal. Mr. Irwin is a builder himself, and he says he got the chance to see Edward at work from time to time, and there was no hocus pocus about it. In 1996, Irwin wrote a book called Mr. Kant is Dead, the story of Coral Castle, which goes into detail as to how Edward did it with pictures and drawings. So it would seem mystery solved, at least for those of us who live in the fact-based world. While Edward only charged 10 cents back in the day, which is the modern equivalent with inflation of about a buck 80, if you want to see it now, it's a whopping $18 to get in. That's a tenfold increase, relatively. Coral Castle is closed Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Frankly, Frankly, my dear, dear, I do do give a damn. damn. Yeah, gone with the wind. Since we're down here in the south, we should probably also take a look at Atlanta, Georgia, which has a number of offbeat spots, including one kind of hengy thing and one kind of tiley thing and one thing about anti-gravity. There's a lot going on in Hotlanta, as morons insist on calling it, in the little Five Points neighborhood, There's an old bank vault that's now a shrine to Elvis, part of the Star Community Bar right on Moreland across from Vortex. There's one of the largest paper collections in the world at the Robert C. Williams Paper Museum on 10th Street Northwest right by Georgia Tech. There's an underground, literally underground, ping pong stadium at the Switchyards Downtown Club on Ted Turner Drive, just a couple of blocks south of the huge Ferris wheel known as the Skyview Atlanta. There's a haunted Kroger grocery store a hiking trail decorated with weird art like baby doll heads, a museum for the CDC, lots of teeny tiny doors around town, the very first time capsule in the world, a puppetry center with the largest collection of Jim Henson artifacts, the home of both Coca-Cola and CNN, both of which you can tour, lots of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. sites, and much, much more. There's also a hopping restaurant and bar scene. In many ways, it's just a great city, except for the traffic, which is terrible. In the old Fourth Ward, in the park that runs alongside the John Lewis Freedom Parkway Northeast, there's a public art installation by Sol LeWitt called 54 Columns, which is, in fact, 54 columns, made of white concrete between 10 and 20 feet tall, standing in a group. No surprise, some wags have called it, I think you see what's coming, the Atlanta Stonehenge. And while the piece 
does confuse some people. They see it and they don't know it's an art piece. So they say, is it a building going up or is it a building coming down or what is it? There's really no mystery here. The artist wanted it to evoke the urbanism of Atlanta. And when it's seen from a distance at the right angle, it actually resembles the Atlanta skyline at the time that he built it. It's a stark minimalist work that's really designed to be walked around and through. And as such, it's reminiscent of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin by Peter Eisenman and Boro Hoppold. Some love it, performing public dance and theatrical works there, doing photo shoots and discussing what it all means over craft cocktails, while other people just hate it. Residents in the area decided back in 2003 that they hated it so much, they planted a bunch of trees to hide the weird columns. But the city took the trees out, saying that they, quote, spoiled the sanctity of Lewitt's installation. Atlanta's got lots of trees, after all, but it's only got one of these artworks. A couple of years later, someone, maybe the artist, maybe not, painted one of the columns bright pink. Making Making it up up in our our secret secret world. world. A Peter Gabriel reference. Atlanta also has one part of a multi-piece, multi-country art installation by Amos Demetrios, who describes himself as a geographer at large. Tucked away on a wall underneath the stairs next to a power box at the Westside Urban Market and Provisions District, which is a repurposed office park and interior design showroom, there's a plaque to the Atalanta Desert. The story thereon tells of the once great roadway built by the Tehachapi civilization across this area, which once was an inhospitable desert. At this very spot on the Svaltway, that's what the Tehachapi called their great roads, a woman named Martha Pulaski set up a trading post that would become the seed for the great city that would one day become known as Atlanta in English. It was at this humble establishment that explorer Iglesia Gutierrez first met the ill-fated Swafum Hood, where Nobunaga Geisen promised to aid the Alcabiades and the poet Ichikyo Ifhir, the plaque says his name should be pronounced like the sound of a falling tree, first heard the language known as false cognate. Wow, you may be thinking, I never heard of any of that. Or you might be thinking, wow, what a bunch of gibberish. This is all part of Demetrios's storytelling art project, told through a series of plaques that are literally all over the world, about a parallel world that exists or existed underneath ours. The name of that world is Kimexithir, which is a word in the language known as cognate, a combination of Kimara, which means the physical world, and Ixthira, which is a shape that has infinity minus 29 sides. It's a weird and wonderful project designed to make people sort of wonder at possibility, to think about what could be and so interact with their surroundings in a new way. The most recent plaque to go up was placed on February 10th, 2019, at the Prezeris Church on the Portuguese island of Madeira, titled Where Tenderness Began, it tells the story in English and Portuguese of a meeting between a native inhabitant of the island, from the Sokhelin people who had amazing eyesight, and a giant being from space, who at first seemed very frightening, but then the two creatures realized that they were sentient, and if they could just find the right language and present tenderness towards one another, communication would be possible. And in fact, all beings everywhere on all worlds and in all universes could be saved through this combination of right empathic attitude and the right words. It's a lovely sentiment. 
much nicer than the plaque that was put up in New York City in 2004, which has been stolen. Ah, New York. As I've said, there are plaques all over the place. There's one in Iceland that tells the tale of a very famous game of interdimensional hopscotch. One in Taiwan that talks of a language in which numbers are words and words are numbers. Another that describes creatures with seven legs who used to live in Spain. A spot outside of Vienna, Austria, where the sky was once under your feet. A place in Michigan where a floating island ran aground. A location in Oklahoma where the veil between our world and Kamixathir is the thinnest, and many, many more. The very first plaque was placed in nearby Athens, Georgia, back in 2003, and it has since grown to 142.5 plaques in 30 countries. The point five is that the artist has a plan for putting a plaque on the moon, but that hasn't actually happened yet, so he says it's a half installation. To learn more about this really fantastic and totally unique, literally world-spanning art project, check the episode notes for a link to the website and more. Don't get me down. Yeah, a Beatles reference. The last place we'll look at in Atlanta is the Gravity Research Foundation Monument, a stone marker in a courtyard at the Emory University Math and Science Center in Northeast Atlanta, not far from Candler Lake and the CDC. This marker was erected by economist, entrepreneur, and business theorist Roger Babson. Born in 1875, he graduated from MIT, but that august institution could not rid him of some of his kookier notions. He developed a theory of financial investment based on Isaac Newton's Law of Action and Reaction, better known as Newton's Third Law, and he thought gravity influenced the stock market. And yet, he had a sharp intellect and accomplished some pretty interesting things. While still a student at MIT, he convinced the dean to create a course in what he called business engineering. The dean agreed, and eventually this would morph into the MBA, or Masters of Business Administration, program that we now know of today that you can get everywhere. On September 5th, 1929, he predicted the stock market would crash soon, and that very day it dipped 3%. This dip became later known as the Babson Break, and it is generally considered to be the beginning of the great stock market crash that would usher in the Great Depression. The stock market crash actually took a couple of months, though there was a week in October that was the famous week, Black Monday, Black Tuesday, Black Thursday, and so on. Babson later went on to found Babson College in Massachusetts, Weber College, later renamed Weber International University in Babson Park, Florida, a town that was named for him, and Utopia College in Kansas, which used to issue not degrees, but certificates, but that closed in 1970. During the Great Depression, he supported stonecutters near his hometown of Gloucester in Massachusetts by paying them to carve and erect a series of stone markers in an area known as Dogtown, an abandoned settlement on Cape Ann. The stone markers had sayings on them like, Help mother, spiritual power, get a job, be on time, use your head, keep out of debt. And some of them were just a single word like intelligence or loyalty or kindness. These markers would become known as the Babson Boulders. But he also had some less successful ideas. He was a stalwart member of the Calvinist Progressive Congregational Christian Churches, which would later rebrand as the United Church of Christ in 1957. And he thought he found proof that churches follow cycles in development and attendance, just like businesses do. He filed patents for battery-operated parking meters in the 1920s, but they were unworkable because they required a connection between the meter and the parked car. So Carl McGee's mechanical parking meter ended up taking the prize in 1932, and McGee is credited with inventing the parking meter. Babson also ran for president of the United States in 1940 on the Prohibition Ticket. 
the prohibition ticket because that worked out so well in the 1920s. He got 0.12% of the vote, far behind FDR, who got over 54% of the vote. After his unsuccessful presidential run, he cast about looking for other things to do. And the main focus of his attention and ire was gravity. In 1948, he wrote an essay called Gravity, Our Enemy Number One. He blamed gravity for killing his sister, who had drowned as a child, and also his grandson in 1947, who also drowned. After this last drowning, he vowed to rid humanity of this evil scourge once and for all. You think with the two drownings, he'd have a problem with water, but no, it was gravity. He placed the blame for literally millions of deaths on gravity, including those from airplanes, broken bones, and intestinal issues. That same year, 1948, he went to Boston where he founded the Gravity Research Foundation, whose mandate was to learn everything they could about this evil force and invent gravitational shielding that would protect humans from gravity's malicious influence. However, he also thought that perhaps properly harnessed, gravity could become a source of limitless power and energy. He'd hated gravity for a very long time. Apparently, he first got the idea for creating an institute to research it from Thomas Edison. (laughs) In fact, many well-known types were attracted to it, including six people who would later win Nobel Prizes, the inventor of frozen food, Clarence Birdseye, and the Russian-American inventor of the helicopter, Igor Sikorsky. Theoretical physicist Lewis Witten, who found solutions for Einstein's field equations, was vice president and director of science affairs for the foundation. Lewis's son, Edward Witten, would go on to prove Einstein's positive energy theorem and found M-theory, which unifies all the different versions of string theory into a kind of cohesive whole. Babson offered prize money for anyone who could invent human-scale shielding against gravity and issued what he called gravity grants to 13 universities, quote, to remind students of the blessings forthcoming when science determines what gravity is, how it works, and how it may be controlled. Each of these citadels of learning received a large stone slab regarding their brief, like this one we're talking about, out at Emory University in Atlanta, who was one of the recipients of a grant. Another Margaret Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts, uses their monument for a ceremony wherein they drop apples onto the heads of successful Ph.D. cosmology students. Over time, the foundation shed its eccentricities and weirdnesses, especially after Babson's death in 1967, age 91, and they devoted their time and resources to trying to figure out what exactly gravity is. It used to be described as a force. Einstein says it's a consequence of the curvature of space-time. The Gravity Research Center is now pretty much a legitimate scientific organization, despite its kooky beginnings, and it has put the subject of gravity into a lot of physicists' minds, resulting today in the somewhat flourishing discipline of gravity research in theoretical physics. Among people who have won some of the prize money from the foundation for some more serious and sober writings about gravity are Martin Rees, Roger Penrose, Freeman Dyson, and Stephen Hawking. So mystery is all around us. You just have to look for it. The thing to keep in mind is just because something is enigmatic or mysterious does not necessarily make it threatening. I, for one, enjoy having things that are mysterious and perhaps a little bit unexplained out there. Things that take us outside of the norm. After all, isn't that why we read books and go to the movies and listen to old-time radio shows and podcasts? Again, don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you liked this episode, drop me a line somehow and let me know. And if uh, there's enough interest, perhaps we'll do more travelogues.
Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.